leaders are also like anything that goes wrong is on you, which may or may not be accurate. But the fact of the matter is, it's a tough seat to be in. And you are all alone for the most part. They get to react and say whatever they want. You can't, you're existing in a box, if you will. This box of public opinion. There's a lot going on in your head, but you have to be mindful of your board, right? Your board wants you to do X. Your people want you to do Y. The public expects Z. There's just a lot. And so they need a place of refuge, a place where they feel safe. And frankly, they would be with people who understand what exactly they're going through. Traditional corporate practices got us to a life-threatening climate and unjust society. Changing this trajectory needs bold solutions from diverse thinkers. Welcome to Impact Reimagined, the podcast that helps you discover and envision a future where humanity's greatest problems are solved. I am Dr. Noah Gaffney, Executive Director of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation and your host. In the classic ancient book, Plato's Republic, the great philosopher Socrates constantly challenges the ideologies of his students and peers. In questioning diverse belief systems, Socrates helps these young people to build, in theory, an ideal society. Cordell Carter believes that it is this very Socratic method that can guide young business leaders to future of innovation in America. As the executive director of the Aspen Institute's Socrates program, Cordell uses open-minded dialogue as a path for belonging and social innovation. In the program, entrepreneurs engage in conversation with a diverse group of people and opinions. In this episode, Cordell explains how engaging in dialogue can lead us to an innovative America that represents everyone. Cordell credits his service-driven passion to his upbringing. I'm the son of a preacher man, and it took me many, many years to understand what my personal ministry would be. I, I knew it wasn't what he did or what he does. I'm a very different person than my wonderful father and mother, and I can't serve the way they serve, but I do believe there's a secular version of that. And with the help of the Aspen Institute since 2011, when I first started participating and Socrates and this whole idea of self-introspection and where am I going with this thing and how will I use the best years of my life and how do I want to be remembered? You know, I said this idea of bringing people together, of elevating others, of introducing them to new ideas, new people, new concepts. That's my jam. And it's something I'm very, very good at. Cordell started working at the Aspen Institute more than six years ago. The Aspen Institute was founded after World War II. Its intention was to provide a platform where all of mankind could find their commonalities to build a more inclusive and equitable society. They would have these amazing three-week-long seminars out in the woods doing Antigone with the togas on and with these iconic images of them. And the, I would say the 70s, 80s, the institute began, they opened up a bit. Uh, this idea that it wasn't just about men finding a common humanity, but mankind, this idea that we have to be a little more inclusive. By gathering a diverse range of social and business leaders, the Institute seeks to solve the world's most complex issues through dialogue and action. Cordell is the executive director of the Institute's Socrates program. 
The program, founded 27 years ago, holds seminars with a range of young leaders that debate current issues and share opinions. So we started in the winter of 1994 with some informal gatherings at Gary and Laura Lauder's homes in Aspen. And then in 1996, we became a formalized program at the Institute. And since that time, you know, introducing more than 10,000 leaders from 35 countries to values and ethics base, Socratic dialogue on contemporary topics, you know, led by leaders in that field, not philosophers. We don't do a lot of Plato and Locke. You're going to hear a lot of things that are impacting you today, case studies, best practices, some philosophical musings, but it's based in the current here now versus the ancient times. And so that's the big contrast with what we do versus some of our more senior programs. The Socrates program exposes young people to ideologies outside of their comfort zone. And what they learn pushes them to make changes in their communities and organizations. We have forgotten the practice of what I call the playful jousting. This idea that we can disagree without being disagreeable. We can do it in a very respectful way. Then we can challenge each other's ideas in a semi-public space that's still safe and do it, frankly, without major consequence. Now, we may be diametric opposed on an issue and, you know, I may not like you very much after learning your interests, but I certainly respect the way that you express yourself. We did it within a certain format. We know this format has worked very well, you know, learning by asking questions. And we wanted to recreate some of that, which the founders did when they created the program almost 30 years ago. Like, let's reinstitute the practice of Socratic dialogue as a bomb for these highly partisan times where people are not asking questions. They're making an assumption based on how you vote. I know what you believe based on the sticker on your chest, and I'm going to behave as such. I said, well, that is an antiquated way of thinking and tribalism at its best. And I think a negative mark on the body politic actually of the country we, we have to do better and i'm convinced that people of good intentions can and will if we give them the form and that's the form that we create the socratic forums aren't meant to be merely philosophical intellectual feasts in fact the program continues to inspire these young business leaders to reflect on current issues can you give me some examples of the dialogues that take place and how people stretch their thinking accordingly Sure. We just did one. This would have been in February on can we think beyond race? And we had a uh, pretty prominent public intellectual who happens to be a person who's not, he's a man of color, but hates the idea of race. He's racially ambiguous. And you look at him, you could tell what he is. Thomas Shannon Williams, I'm referencing. And he really plays on that. He loves to joust. And so you had some folks coming into the seminar assuming we're going to be talking about what people typically talk about when it comes to race in America. And that is not what they experienced at all. Some people love this. Some people loathe that. But the point is they had an intellectual experience like none other. We did another one last year called Notes from the Native Sons. Hmm. And here we did a string theory between Frederick Douglass, James Baldwin, and Tanahasi Coates. And the idea was to compare contrast their literary allegiance to the country because they all are very proud Americans. They just express it in very different ways. And it was a very interesting seminar. It was so inspiring by some that they went off and, and launched organizations to continue conversations and readings just like that. If I were to nail this down in any fashion, we live in a very abbreviated public discourse. That's the culture, very abbreviated. It's who can describe the problem the fastest, the best, and the most articulate, and who can give you the best soundbite that can be repeated on Twitter and, and the like. 
And I'm like, well, that's not discourse. Okay. That's not how you get to any problem. You basically, that's a uh, self-aggrandizement. And Aspen is the opposite of that. They ask you different questions. Like you've been successful, but what does it mean to be significant? And significance happens, frankly, when you're gone, you're not here anymore. Okay. But how will people remember you? Those are the questions that we are forcing people at the height of their success, at the height of their wealth to contend with, with others that are contending with at the same time. That's a very different leadership exercise than most of it. Like, I'm not here to celebrate you. I'm here to challenge you and to bust you in the mouth. Okay. Now what, friend? Now what? Okay. We're all going to die. Now what? <laughs> okay. And so I think that's what makes the experience so unique. And I think that's what keeps people coming back. Because we're constantly wrestling with these issues, right? Is it me and what I want or what's good for the world? If I do what's good for the world, will anyone notice? Will anyone care? Okay, well, we're in a community that does care about it. And so I think that's what welcomes people back. That's what we have suddenly repeat. And, and Socrates, you know, 30 to 35% of all of our seminars are filled by alums, okay, who've been doing it, you know, some 25 different seminars they've done over the last 27 years. So there's a special sauce that keeps them coming back. Absolutely. And why do you think it's important to challenge leaders in this day and age? We're not being challenged enough, frankly. You look in the private sector, leaders are also like anything that goes wrong is on you, which may or may not be accurate. But the fact of the matter is, it's a tough seat to be in. And you are all alone for the most part because there's no one that can walk that road. They don't have to make the decisions that you have to make. They get to react and say whatever they want. You're existing in a box, if you will. This box of public opinion, politician and a strategist at the same time. There's a lot going on in your head, but you have to be mindful of your board, right? Your board wants you to do X. Your people want you to do Y. The public expects Z. There's just a lot. And so they need a place of refuge, a place where they feel safe. And frankly, they would be with people who understand what exactly they're going through. And so that is what Aspen has been for generations of leaders. To break out of this box and create real impact, business leaders of color must be acknowledged and empowered. This is why Cordell founded the Project of Belonging. The initiative holds forums to push ahead diversity, equity, and inclusion within organizations. When we give voices to leaders from every background, our business models also account for everyone. I think leaders should be focused on the following. Firstly, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a strategy to get you to some place. But as a nation, we've never defined the place. Where are we going with all this? This is not about compliance and a census taking. This is to an ultimate end. So let's articulate that end. We believe that end to be a society and organizations where everyone belongs and enjoy equitable opportunities to thrive. Now you need the E and I part of E and I to thrive. The D is self-evident. Okay, the last majority white high school graduating class in America will be 2025. Wow. The, the cliff is here. Okay, so we don't need to talk about diversity anymore. Okay, we need to talk about equity and inclusion. Okay, so we are still coming in the organizations at different starting places and it impacts the way we move. And so like, that's the hard work. I think DNI actually gets more difficult once you get rid of the D, okay? Because the equity and inclusion part is, is challenging. To expand on these opportunities for diversity and belonging, Cordell focuses on three main pillars. One is creating a professional learning community of professionals that are deeply engaged in these issues. Moreover, they want to connect their work to the P&L of their organizations. So show me the case study, show me the metrics, show me the playbooks, because there are a lot of people that are in this space 
that are what I call just paddling water. You know, the, the DNI of the organizations is frankly them, their jobs. There's no budget, there's no strategy, there's no team. Okay. They represent DNI. Okay. Perhaps the only people of color on the executive team. To me, that's a tenuous place to be. And, and frankly, it smacks of a lack of commitment. Because if you believe in something, I believe a budget is a moral document. Okay. You, you invest in what you believe in. And then I always say, like, I, I can answer a question about your organization very quickly based on who you hire and what you say. <laughs> what you invest in and who you hire. I can tell you everything about the organization. I don't care what you say. Show me where the money is and show me who you hire to do it. The second pillar is holding large convenings or assemblies. Cordell founded the Festival of Diaspora for leaders from minority groups to come together and fight against gender and racial inequalities. These business leaders are able to collaborate on grassroots level impact. This is something we started, we being a group of Aspen Connected volunteers during COVID to create a convening, a celebration where we're connecting, we're celebrating, we're collaborating, but we're doing it south of the U.S. This idea that the geopolitical emphasis on Europe, Asia, and the Middle East is not sustainable, that we should be focusing on the 700 million people that live just south of us that share history with us. They're all products of European expansion, just like we are. And so let's start building relationships. Let's start putting anchors in the ground. We're focusing on uh, women entrepreneurship, on economic development, all these bread and butter issues, but a little differently. Instead of going to foundations saying, hey, please support us, saying, let us pull our resources together because the power of your U.S. currency can make something move in Colombia, can make something move in Brazil. So let's do it first on our own, and then we can go out to our, our stakeholder organizations and ask for bigger things. But right now, it's all about relationship building, connecting. It's amazing. The final pillar of belonging is a cohort experience. We are focusing on, let's say, take an issue of, uh, say, Black Wealth Gap. And you're looking at three issues. One could be housing, one could be entrepreneurship, and the third could be political ascension. And you get three or four foundations that are focused on a venture like seed capital for the entrepreneurs. Whereas at the Institute, we rebuild a canon focused on the American story. I'm not talking about Plato and Locke. And that's great. That's what I call Western Civ. And, and that's fantastic. I'm focusing on the last 250 years of history right here on this continent. It's rich. It's diverse. It's interesting. It's, it's the best telenovela you've ever read and ever experienced. And moreover, it's evolving. And so let's focus that on American cities, on American icons, as we are building an American solution to an American problem. And so that is the intent behind that. Moreover, I said, this is not show and tell. Everyone is coming here with a deficit of knowledge. So we're going to learn together. We're on a learning journey together. And that's okay. Okay. It's very much okay. This is not your typical industry conference. You're coming here with notepad and you're reading glasses because you're going to learn something you didn't know. Looking back at history is an important way to learn about our present. But for Cordell, focusing on our future is what will make America better. We are going to a place where, probably I'd say 100 years from now, where the emphasis will not be on how we look, but what we believe and what great citizens we are or aren't. So it's going to become a more culture of, of, of activity, of contribution, rather than tribalism. And at some point, the American populace is going to say, you know what? I'm tired of it. There has to be a better way. 
Cordell believes our greatest assets as a nation are our diversity and youth. But instead of throwing them into the deep end, we need to provide them with equitable opportunities for organizational leadership. It's something that we underplay. We underplay it to a degree or we over-celebrate it. And we put people in positions of authority and power that they're not ready for. They haven't had the leadership training. They haven't had the experience of being a follower first. And you just give them gobs of money and you expect them to perform. And they say, see, I told you, these young people don't get it. See, I told you. So um, there's a lot more to millennials and SBF and Elizabeth Holmes. There's a lot more to it. But I think we're missing an opportunity if we don't properly invest in people and frankly do transitions properly. Other countries have figured this out. It's a rational act. You know, my friend, you, your cognitive ability isn't what it was. So it's time for you to do something different for the good of the organization and for yourself. Don't you want to go plant flowers and watch birds? I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> I look, that's a celebration. <laughs> so. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Right. It I is, think in is. many other places, there's mandatory retirement. Absolutely. So just to give other people a chance, frankly, to cap your, your spending. Again, these are rational acts. And I think that's part of our design flaw and our public policy is that we don't assume people are human. And we assume that people, you know, are going to behave in a perfectly rational place. Nah, that's not what humans do. Okay. We're inherently selfish. If we can hold on to the very last of the resources, we will until some forcing mechanism makes us share. That's who we are as a human. That's not a negative thing. It is what it is. Okay. For instance, my, I have a beagle and for the first time in three years that I've had this dog, she finally got a hold of a rabbit. It was not a good scene. Okay. She ate the entire thing. My sweet baby beagle who snuggles. I'm like, you can't sleep in my bed anymore. You're a vicious animal. Okay. That is her nature. Okay. I can't be angry with her, but the bunny was dumb enough to come that close and broad daylight. Okay. And it was a horrible thing to see, but I mean, that is what she was bred to do. <laughs> so we have to think about humans the same way. What do we naturally do? Okay, let's go policy assuming that rather than the other case. So what do you think we're missing in this conversation that people often overlook? Well, one, we often think that we have more time than we do. You don't. We think it takes far more effort to do something different than it does. It doesn't. It's a choice. And three, it's always easier to be kind than to be mean. You know, 80% of our most productive time as humans will be spent working. And I'm convinced that that time shouldn't suck. It just shouldn't. Okay, why would you live that way? And, you know, the choices that I've made in my career are built around that, this idea that I want to have a good time. I'm going to work my 90 hours regardless, okay? If it's at McDonald's or at Aspen. That's just who I am. I have one speed. I'm on, okay? I'm a bill. That's, That's what I do. I want that time to matter, and I want it to be as fun as humanly possible. And if we all approach work that way and leadership that way, this idea that like it's my job to curate an upperly mobile experience for the people that are purposely availing themselves to me as their leader, my God, who would, like retention wouldn't be an issue. You know, making people happy and glad to come to work, that wouldn't be an issue. I think part of the issues here is that we're approaching it the wrong way. We think it should be harder than it is. And it's just, I don't, I don't agree with that. I really don't. You can be super productive and be nice to people. Cordell was appointed in 2021 by President Biden to the Commission on White House Fellowships. So three or four times a year, I get to interact with some amazing, hopeful, optimistic young American leaders. And it doesn't matter how crappy my week has been going to that selection weekend. 
I leave in tears every time because I am so ecstatic about what's to come. That there are people who believe like I believe. I'm not a voice in the wilderness. They believe in this wonderful place called the American dream. And they're willing to put the work into, they're willing to sacrifice to make it happen for themselves and for others. And that just gives me such tremendous hope. I'm also hopeful of the following. It's a more rational reason. And like, we have two choices. We either go back or we can go forward. And throughout American history, we've always decided to go forward. And so regardless of the noise, the loudest voices, the loudest friends in your, your right and your left are going to get you know 90% of the media coverage. The vast majority of Americans want to move forward. They want peace. They just want the, what's best for their families. They want other families to do well as, as well. And I'm encouraged by the silent majority, that 80% of us that are just not involved in this crazy, highly partisan times. And we're not marching on state capitals. We're too busy taking care of our families to do that. So I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that the fringe at some point are going to run out of people. Show me one country that doesn't have a period of time or a long period of time where people are having a very negative experience. This is what it means to be a nation state. It's an evolve, it's a living organism. And so you have to embrace both the good and negative externalities of, of being part of a human system. But I think tremendous progress has been made, all things considered. Moreover, we have an opportunity to shape the future. And so let's focus on the future. In order to achieve a future where we innovate in an inclusive way, we need to provide spaces for young business leaders to share diverse opinions. I hope that today's conversation inspired you to find ways to create or participate in dialogue. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Impact Reimagined so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Impact Reimagined is produced by the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Rutgers, visit rixie.business.rutgers.edu.